We just thank you for this evening. We thank you for the opportunity we have to study your word and to, to seek what you would have us to, to learn from this and, and guide us and teach us in your son's precious name. Amen. All right, well, we only have two more sections in Psalm 119, so we're two to three weeks away from being complete of Psalm 119. And All right, Psalm 119, verse 153. Consider my afflictions and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and deliver me. Quicken me according to your word. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they seek not your statutes. Great are your tender mercies, O Lord. Quicken me according to your judgments. Many are my persecutors and my enemies. Yet do I not decline from your testimony. I beheld the transgressors and grieved because they kept not your word. Consider how I love your precepts. Quicken me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. Your word is true from the beginning, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. So we're going to be looking at this. We're in the, we're in the letter Resh, and this uh, talks about the head, person, or first is what that letter represents. And he starts out, consider my infl- afflictions and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. And basically he's saying, pay attention to me, God. You know, inspect, regard. You know, this isn't just you know, look at me, but this is really pay attention, God. You know, most of us would be afraid sometimes to say that prayer. God, really pay attention to me and know who I am, even though he does. But yet, many times we try to hold God at arm's length. <laughs> you know, we know that he knows everything we're doing, and yet we go, God, you just stay over there in the corner and kind of leave me alone for a little while. I don't really want you to know me, and yet hear David saying, consider really search out my heart. And he says, consider my afflictions, my poverties, my weaknesses, the problems that I'm having, and also my weaknesses. And this is something we really want to be able to understand. This is David. David's the one that wrote this psalm. But we really want to go before God and say, God, look at the places where I'm weak and deliver me rescue me because you know if we really truly begin to understand who we are that we have weaknesses that we have problems and that God is the only one that can change them (laughs) most of us have too much pride to do that have too much pride to change or let God let God change our weaknesses because what are we as humans God, I can really take care of this. Just leave me alone. Give me enough time and I'll get this fixed. How often do we want to just say, God, I am weak? You know, think back when you were a kid or you, when you have kids. Your kids never want to say, I am weak. I need help. We're no different. You know, we don't change. Just because we get older, we don't get rid of this idea of, I am too proud to admit that I can't get something done. And some people are better at it than others, but in general, even those that are good at it still won't say that they can't get, you know, have you ever struggled with something for a long time before you've asked for help? You know, uh, I'm trying to fix my car. I've been working on my car for three months. You know, you know, my mechanic friend, would you come over and help me? He gets it done in 30 seconds. You know, it's <laughs> maybe not quite that fast, but, you know, comes over and an hour later, your car, your car's fixed, you know, and you've been sitting there 
trying to struggle with it for a long time. I've been trying to struggle to get this, this accomplished for a long time. And finally, I just say, well, I'm tired of playing with it. Ask for help. We do that to God all the time. God, you just stay over there in that corner. And when I finally get tired of trying it, I'll come over there and ask your help. But I'm going to try, I'm going to try real hard to get it done. How far do you get before you find the uh, before you get to the place where you ask him? <laughs> we try, we try, and try, and we try, and we try, and then we finally say, well, "I can't do it," and then we go to God. So eventually, we'll say most of the time we'll eventually go to God after I've done everything I possibly think I can. Because what's what's our statement? I've tried everything else, so maybe it's time to pray. Is that why he helps me find it so fast? Because he's been watching me struggle long enough that he already knows where it's at? Well, he already knew where it was at to begin with. So it's okay. <laughs> but, you know, our attitude really is that. I've tried everything else. Now it's time to pray instead of let's bring God into it from the very beginning. Do it myself all the time. God, I can do this one. This one's a piece of cake as you mess it up. Uh, and you know, I saw I saw one time in a repair shop, the the price for fixing something, the price if you have already tried to fix something, <laughs> you know, and it's hundreds of dollars more, you know, and it's kind of a joke thing, but you know, it really is. How often do we really mess things up in our life before we come to God and say, God, I want you to really consider my affliction and save me. Oh, how much trouble we could avoid if we would just go to God first. And realize that he wants to help us. Somewhere in the back of our mind, we have this kind of idea that God does not want to help us in our little things of life. And it might be because we think they're too little to bother God by. And as I've said, though, what problem can we as his creation have that God would consider a big problem? The biggest problem you could possibly imagine in your life to God is not a big problem. And yet, there are a lot of people who go, God, this is just too little of a problem. Why, why would you care where my car keys are? Why would you care, you know, what this? Why would you care about that? Why would you care about what I'm doing this evening for, for entertainment? You know, God, these are just little everyday problems. You, but, you know, God cares about every little aspect of our life. And we need to change the way we think, myself included when I say that. We need to change the way we think and say, God, what is it you want me to do? How many times have you gone out and done something and then God puts you in the middle of a divine appointment in the middle of it? You know, I can remember recently I went with Lynn to the doctor's appointment. I had no desire to go to the doctor's appointment with Lynn, and yet I felt I needed to go with her that day. Because she doesn't let me go in the room, so I sit in the waiting room. It's really absolutely no fun to go to these appointments at all because I sit in the waiting room while, while we wait for her to go in and then sit at the waiting room while she's in. But I went on this one and then I was able to help this person with their car a little bit. They needed a jump start, talked with them about God a little bit. You know, if I hadn't gone there, I wouldn't have been there to talk to this person and help this person. You know, Jesus so often would be on his way someplace and he would stop to minister to somebody in the middle of his on his way to someplace else. And the one I think mostly of is Jairus. He's going to go heal, heal Jairus' daughter, and on the way there he stops and talks to the woman who reaches out and touches him with the issue of the blood. 
You know, and you can imagine how Jairus is feeling. My daughter's dying. Jesus, what, are, what, do, what do you think you're doing? Why are you stopping talking to this woman when my daughter is dying and I need you at my house now? And Jesus has stopped to talk to somebody else. You know, would we have done that? On our way for, to do one thing, would we have stopped and done something else? You know, just, a, just a rhetorical question for us to think about, you know, because we get so busy and say, I'm focused, and I'm, that, I'm guilty of that. I'm, I've told many people, if I walk past you and, I'm, and you see me in the store and I walk past you, don't think I'm ignoring you because I probably never even saw you. When I go to a store, I'm going for one reason, that's to get what I want and get out of the store as fast as I can because I hate shopping. There is nothing fun about shopping in my, in my mindset. I am not one to walk up and down the rows to see what's in the store. I know what I want, where I'm going, and I get it and I come back out. So, you know, I would be very guilty of going to the store and missing divine appointments because I'm so focused on getting in and getting out. Jesus wasn't that way. He was always listening to the Father for how to minister to people. Well, I'm sure he went to whatever stores they had, whatever equivalent of stores they had. Stores are not brand new. <laughs> stores are not brand new. <laughs> he says, for, consider my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. I do not ignore your laws. And almost he's saying, you know, because I'm, because I'm trying to honor you, God, reach out. And you know, if we're not trying to follow and obey God, there's no reason why he's going to help us because he wants us to hit rock bottom. And we've talked about this on several occasions. How many times do we as parents keep our kids from coming to God because we try to stop bad things from happening to them? And usually it's, well, well if something bad happens to them, something bad happens to the grandkids. Well, yeah, that's true. But how much worse is going to happen when God doesn't get hold of them at some higher level. You know, so we're carrying, we think we're carrying about, our, about them, but things have to get worse. You know, how many times in our own life does things have to get worse? We have to hit whatever our rock bottom is before we turn around. And I share this and Lynn, Lynn always laughs, but it took me six years to learn something one time. While I'm learning it, my family's suffering. Not a good thing as a, as a husband and a father to say, because I'm so stupid and slow, the family suffers. And sometimes we prevent others from suffering. And we, it's hard. It is hard to determine how much am I sitting there, when should I step in, when should I not step in, when should I help, when should I not help. And all of this comes down to listening to God. Because sometimes when we think we're helping, we're not helping. And it's a really hard thing. I worked benevolence for a long time and you had to decide if we give this person money, are we helping them or are we enabling bad habits and a bad lifestyle that continues to put them in a bad place for another month? And that was a hard decision sometimes. Now, sometimes it wasn't so hard. When you've seen them four times in, the la in, in two years, you go, no, we're not, we're not helping you, we're enabling you. And no, we're not doing it anymore. But especially those first one or two times when people would come in, there was some very hard decisions sometimes. Are we helping this person? And if they opened up, it was easy. If they didn't, it was very hard to do. But he says, I have not forgotten your law. 
says, plead my cause and deliver me. Quicken me according to your word. Plead my cause. Plead my disputes. I'm going to take this over toward Job. David is saying, when I'm being accused of wrongdoing, and the primary accuser is Satan, God, when Satan comes to you and accuses me, I want you to plead my cause, which he's going to do anyway. You know, what, it, what, it, what happens, you know, and, and I love going to Job because Job is not an isolated occurrence. Those first three chapters of Job are not an isolated occurrence. To this day, Satan goes up to heaven and says, you know, and the Father and God goes, you know, what, what, what you been doing? Where you been? I've been doing this, that, and, you know, I've been walking around, and, you know. And God says, have you considered my servant? You know, hopefully put your name in there at some point. And, you know, this, is, this person is following me and doing what I'm asking and, and trying, to, trying to be good and it's covered in the blood. And he goes, yeah, the, but, you know, if you just took your hand off them, <laughs> and all of a sudden... We end up with the wonderful trials of Job, <laughs> to a much lesser degree than Job. I don't think any of us have ever gone through what Job went through. But he says, plead my cause and deliver me. And then quicken. Quicken means to be made alive. Quicken me according to your word. Have you ever spent time feeling tired, exhausted, and then you get into God's word, you do some studying, you go to a Bible study, you go to church, and you just come out really alive. Sometimes it's crazy for me on Sunday night, especially I get a little tired in the afternoon, I'm really tired, and then I teach this Bible study. And when I'm, before I start the Bible study, I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to go home, I'm going to go straight to bed. I can tell you very rarely do I go home and go straight to bed after Sunday night's message or Wednesday night, or Tuesday, or Thursday. You know, I go home, I come in, I'm tired, I'm beat, and all of a sudden I start lifting up God's word and, and teaching his word, and end up very alive and quickened. You ever feel like you're just going through the motions sometimes? I would think that maybe some people after several years of doing it, they just... Do I feel like I'm going through the motions? No? No? I am called to do what I'm doing, and I thoroughly enjoy teaching. Now, there's times when I like teaching better than other days. You know, there are times when I am dead tired, and it's definitely God teaching. There's times when, there are times when I know that it's me teaching and not, not God, because I, you know, in, in just because I am teaching because I have to. But I enjoy, even then I enjoy doing it, because it's, it is so real to me. Um, I want to teach God's word. If I'm not teaching God's word here, I'd be teaching it on, you know, to people on the outside. Uh, I've had many people share with me that they learn a lot just by talking with me, and I'm not even purposely teaching. I'm just talking and just teaching. Yeah, it's it's who I am to to do these things. Yeah, I just I just enjoy doing it. Uh, it's real. It's it's vital. It's who I am, and it brings quick quickening. But it is also a result of having spent 44 years of studying God's word. And I, from the time I got saved, I was put into God's word to learn it. And I just enjoy his word to the, because I know how important it is and it's real to me. Uh, I've shared with you, I, 
I met the guy that was the general manager of the TA when I was there, and he asked me what I was doing. I told him, well, I'm a pastor. And his answer was, he goes, I know that would be something you'd be doing because of whenever you would talk about God, you're, you're, you lit up. You, it was what you wanted to do. So, you know, I've told people, I'm doing what I've always done. It's just fun that I get a little extra pay now. I get, pay, I get paid a little bit to do what I've always done. And how, the question then becomes, how real is God to you? How important is he in your life? Is he just a added part or is he the center of all that you do? And it becomes very important. If he's the center of what you do, he's the center of who you are in your heart, he comes out. And not meaning that everybody's going to be a teacher, but does God come into our conversations? And this is something I say quite often. How prevalent is your conversation about God? Does he come up in the majority of your conversations? Does he, is he a thought in your life most, most of your time? Or are you so busy doing whatever it is you're doing that he doesn't come in at all? You can hold a conversation with somebody for an hour or two, be with them for an hour or two, and God never shows up in your, in your being. That kind of says a lot about where you are with God. Yeah. And believe me, I get to share about God all the time in the prison. It's just, it comes up. You know, if I'm mentoring a class, uh, proctoring a class, teaching a class, then that is class time. It is not time to talk about God. But in the hallways and roundabout, I'll talk to God, I'll, you know, talk about God to anybody I'm talking to. Because that's what's important in my life. I run into lots of people who are in, in, aren't interested. But you know what? They're going to hear about them anyway. I understand that, but how do you get past that point? I think in my case is that I really don't care whether they're interested or not. Because what's on my heart? If you meet somebody who is a fanatic about football, they will talk to everybody about football because that's what they're a fanatic about. And they really don't care whether you're interested or not. If they find somebody who's interested, they'll talk a lot more with that person. But they're going to talk about what they like to talk about. And when they find somebody that wants to talk about it, they go on to it. So what really is important to us? You know, it's, it's kind of an interesting statement because think about the people you talk to. What do they talk about? They talk about whatever it is they like to talk about. For some people, it's themselves. <laughs> Let me talk about me. Why? Because that's the most important thing in their life is me. You know, or let me talk about my hobby. Let me talk about my sports team. Let me talk about this, that, or the other thing. Idol. Whatever they're right. Well, kind of it's an idol. It almost really is an idol. What's, what is the most important thing in your, in, your, in your inner being? You are going to talk about whatever is important to you. And so what I've told many people is think about what you talk about. When you're around talking to people, what are you talking about? Because that will reveal what's most important in your heart. Now, how many people have you met that all they ever talk about is their animals? You know, uh, you know gee, your animals are very important to you. you know, uh, and never talk about God. They talk about their work. 
especially for men. Men oftentimes will talk about their work. Their, their work is who they are and what they, and it's the most important thing to them and that's all they ever talk about. Um, might be their family, might be their sports, might be their, but this is what's important is how important is God to us? Am I very quickened by his word? When I start talking about God, it is something that will excite me <laughs> to no end. I can talk about lots of different topics, but get me on the topic of God and we'll talk for hours without, yeah, that's about the only topic I'll talk about for hours. I'll talk about sports, I'll talk about science, I'll talk about a lot of other things, but when I talk about God, that's very important to me. He is the center of everything I do and everything I want to do. My ultimate goal is to this church to grow enough to pay me to be a full-time pastor, and that would be the greatest thrill in my life is to be able to come here you know, Monday through Friday or Tuesday through Thursday, Saturday or whatever it might be and just be pastor and be in God's word, being out in the community, talking to people. Uh, when I first got here and didn't have a second job, I used to go out. I used to go by the post office just to say hi to people between 11 and 1 when they all go to the post office to get their mail. I used to be there just, hi, how are you doing? And, and I can't do that anymore because I'm not here. Uh, it's kind of, it was kind of fun when I would walk around chloride. Very few people know my name, but they know my title. I'm pastor. And it's kind of funny because I think about the old west towns where the pastor was, you know, pastor or parson, and everybody, that was the only title they ever knew him by. Uh, and he, whether they went to town or not, he was <laughs> the town's pastor. And that's kind of the way it is in this little town. There's only one church, and, and whether they come here or not, they know, they know who I am by title. Now, it may not be so true now that I've been working for two, for two years, but, but it, it's, it's a fun, fun place to be. Verse 155, salvation is far from the wicked, for they seek not your statutes. And salvation, deliverance. Deliverance is far from the wicked. God is not going to make life easy on the wicked. Why? Because they're not seeking him. <laughs> they're not even seeking to follow God, so therefore God will not make life easy for them. Now, having said this, you know, David starts out in the beginning Psalms, you know, why do, why do the wicked uh, rage and, the, and all these people seem like they're doing good? And we've talked many times about this. How many times do we look at somebody and say, wow, they got it all put together. They got lots of money. They've got a house. They've got cars. They've got a big business. They got money in the bank. And if you really got to know them, they're miserable, knowing that nothing is going right. You don't, and again, we've talked about this. You don't believe us? Just open up, your, open up your newspaper and find out how many of these people are alcoholics, addicted to drugs, overdosing on these things, committing suicide, checking into psychiatric wards because they're, because they're just not happy. Yeah. And we have this problem, you know, even as Christians, we look at somebody, well, Jesus, they had all the money in the world. You know, if I had all the money, I'd be really happy. No, you wouldn't. If you're not happy with what you've got, you will not be happy with lots of stuff because stuff does not make you happy. If you're not happy with where you're at now, even if you had all the fame in the world, you would not be happy because fame is not going to make you happy. Paul said it, I have learned to be content with much and with little. Why? Because his contentment was in Christ. 
I am content with who I am in Christ. So therefore, if God gives me much, I'm going to be content with much. If he gives me little, I'm going to be content with little. Why? Because my contentment is in him and what he gives me. And here, here he's saying the same thing. Salvation is far from the wicked. And it may look like they've got their whole life together. And I've heard people go, you know, you're telling me you know, wealth is not going to be, well, I'd love to try it. Well, yeah, you probably would, but you're not going to be happy. You may think, because we all think it is. We all think if we get wealthy or the top of the company or, the, or all the fame that we want or everybody's, everybody's in a position where they are attracted to us for some reason, that we're going to be happy. Most superstars have a lot of people paying attention to them and then they're always wondering, are they paying attention to me because of, of everything I've got or are they paying attention to me? And they know in their heart that they're paying attention to them because of what they got, not because of who they are. And then they end up being depressed because what they thought would make them happy isn't making them happy. And they don't know where to go to next. Wealthy people all the time are going through that. I just don't know whether you're trying to get something for me or if you're really, really my friend. And so, yeah, there's that whole attitude of why are, why are you around me? You, you didn't care for me when I was a nobody, and now all of a sudden you're around me. Are you really, do you really care for me, or do you care for what, what you might get from me? And we tend to have this idea that contentment lies somewhere else. Even as Christians, sometimes we have this idea that contentment will ri li ri uh, be found in something else, and it must be found in God completely. And if, it, if we're not content in him, we're not going to find contentment anywhere else. Pascal said that all of us have a God-shaped hole in our hearts and only God can fill it because he is infinite. Nothing else will fill it. And so we need to be able to understand that our contentment must lie in him. And if we're not looking after him, we're not trying to follow his statutes, we're not going to find contentment. You know, it is great. I love just giving over my life to God and I'm starting to really learn in the last 15 years or so to be quick at giving over my life to him and say God you know you know slow learner it took me 35 years uh, 25 30 years to finally realize you know hey I give up something God blesses me I give up something God blesses me I'm getting faster at saying God I want to give this up <laughs> you know a little bit slow on the uptake. It took me a little while to get there. But I'm getting better at saying, God, you know, just help teach me to give up quickly and surrender. And I'm learning the power of surrender with God. And believe me, it took me a long time to learn to surrender God. I fought and fought and fought and fought and fought. And every time I would surrender, I'm going, God, this was so easy. What, why did I take six years to, to surrender? Why did I take three years to surrender? Why did I take... You know, six months to surrender. Because you get to the other side of surrender and it's like, wow, this was so simple. I struggled and fought and, and argued and, and didn't surrender and all of a sudden I surrendered and wow, God. And this is why I tell people, I hear it all the time. How do you do it? You just do it. When you get there and you start surrendering to God, you go, man, God is so simple. Why did I fight for, you know, for me, the longest one I know of is six months, uh, six years. I've talked to people, it seems like they've been trying to surrender for decades because they just 
we want in our hearts so much to, to be me. Look what I have done. So we fight with God for a long time. And God says, it's me. Just let go and let it be me. Paul knocked off his horse. God, what do you want me to do? I'm, I'm finally listening. And he says, go talk to this, go talk to Ananias. Ananias? Anyway, the guy that he had to go talk to. You know, and that poor guy's being, go talk to Saul. Uh, God, I know who Saul is. He's the guy that's dragging everybody off to prison. And you, uh, God, uh, I don't know, that, don't know that I'm hearing the right voice here. Are you sure that this is God talking to me? Yeah, and then ends up going to talk to Saul. Can you imagine being that man? Being told to go talk to the guy who's persecuting the church and dragging people off into prison? It'd be very uncomfortable in many levels. And it would be one of those like, God, uh, I hope this is really you because I'm taking, I'm taking my life in my hands. Oh, yeah. But this is why we need to be very careful. When we know that we've heard God, we need to step out in faith and just do it, even though it looks like it's the worst thing to do. And what's the worst thing that can happen to us? We can go into prison for a long time or get beat. You know, best thing maybe is they'll kill us and we'll go to heaven. So that's the easy way on. That's usually not what happens. All right, verse 156. Great are your tender mercies, O Lord. Quicken me according to your judgments. Do we really think of God's mercy very often? How much he gives us that we that that we don't deserve is his grace, but how often does he not give us what we deserve? I would probably run out of time trying to count all the things that I deserve to get that God has not let happen to me. And he says, great are your tender mercies, quicken me. Again, make me alive to your judgments. Now, David has gone to a lot of things in his life and he's finally coming to the idea, God, I want your judgments. I want to know when I'm doing wrong. I want to know how to correct my life. Most of us fight hard against God's judgments. God, I don't, God, just, I don't want to know what I'm doing. But you know, when we get our hearts tender, God, I need to know what it is you want me to do. Help me do what you want to do. Help me complete my life. I've said it over and over again. Everything that God has asked me to give up has been so easy in one sense when I finally surrender. You know, before, before I surrender, it's like, God, how can I do without this? You know, this is, this is part of my life. I can't do without this. And you surrender it, and it's like, wow, this was so simple. Uh, you know, God, I really thought I'd miss doing this, and here I am, no problem. And, but it says he quickens us. He quickens us with his judgment. He makes us alive. Every time we give something up for God, he gives us life to replace it with. And it's so wonderful to get more and more of that life. Get more and more of God. And, you know, it's not that we're doing this in, to get something. God, I'm going to surrender what I want so that I get. Because when we do it, we think we're losing everything, but we're finally getting God, more of God. And this, the, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. An old Sunday school we sang, the song we sang, I want more of Jesus, more and more. 
and more. I want more of Jesus than I ever had before. I want more of his great love, so rich, so full and free. I want more of Jesus, so I'll give him more of me. The more of ourself we give to him, the more of himself he gives to us. What's he do with us? He crucifies it. I give him me, he crucifies it, and he gives me more of himself to replace what I gave him. <laughs> which makes us happier, gives us a better life, and makes it easier, actually, to give him more. As I see getting more of him, it makes it easier to give more of myself to, to him and say, hey, you know, hey, keep taking this away. Every once in a while, he gives us, well, you know, you've been giving me your easy stuff. I want, I want this part of you. <laughs> uh, God, I'm not sure I want to give that part of me yet. <laughs> yeah. you know, we are so foolish sometimes in our dealings with God. And having walked with him long enough to see that he's never left me high and dry, he's never, when I've given something up, it's never been something that I found regret for giving up. Because he says, here's, here's your replacement. Here's, here's your replacement, and it's him. God will always bless us even if we fight him. My six years of fighting him less, led to a great blessing, but there was also a lot of sorrow in getting there to the blessing that didn't need to be there and a lot of hardship on my family that didn't need to be there and it helped them grow as well I mean God works all things out for good you know all things work together for good according to those who are called according to the pur purpose of God so God does do good but you know what he would give those blessings even if I didn't have to learn it the hard way if I had just surrendered earlier I would have still gotten the blessings. I would have still gotten the knowledge of, of how to do it. And they would have gotten the knowledge of how to be, do it without all the hard times in between that God will still use for good. All right? But why go through the hard times when you don't have to? Even though God's going to make them good, you know, you do something good out of it, why go through it? Adam and Eve did not have to sin, and God had to do a redemption for them in the, in, because of what they did. Even though he knew they were going to do it, they didn't have to. Gave them there so that they would have a free will to make a decision to, to say yes or no. And to see where we're actually at. Same thing he does with us all the time. And he knew which way they were going. He knew which way they were going, and you know, why does he send trials our direction? Is to see, our, do we believe what we believe, and will we stand with him? So technically, the tree is the same, the same deal. You know, I'm going to show you that you are a sinner. You know, even in their case, technically, they were sinners. They had a desire to sin. But I really, truly believe that in their mind, they had fallen long before that. Long before they actually consumed, because they're standing near the one thing that they're not allowed to do. Very similar, and it's not necessarily because if you are thinking about something often enough, you're going to commit the sin. Okay, just, and that's part of the problem that we have with our entertainment industry that's out there right now. We get shown so much murder, so much adultery, so much fornication, so much theft. You know, have you ever watched a show, maybe a real crime show or even some of the detective shows, and you're thinking, well, if I was to do that, I wouldn't have done this, this, and this that, that, got, that got them caught. You know, and you start thinking about how you could do the perfect you know, the quote-unquote perfect crime that doesn't exist. Or how, stupid they or how stupid they were for doing the things that they did and why could, well, you know, why would they have done that? 
we're already starting to entertain things that we probably shouldn't entertain. And if you're taking a steady diet of this stuff, what might happen? Who knows? How many people are watching these murders and, and, and stuff and then end up committing a murder just to see if they could get away with it? Yeah, oh, we're, we're bombarded by this stuff all the time. Yeah, we're bombarded by it. So all kinds of things that go in, into this. Where is our life? Where is our thoughts? What are we filling ourselves up with? This is why it is so important for us to, to assemble together, to be in God's word. Because what are our options out there? If we're hanging around with the world, filling our mind with the world's way of doing things, eventually we're going to act out on those, on those, on those activities. You know, I got saved, and the first thing I wanted to do is I wanted to go to church. And at 10 years old, it's hard to go to church <laughs> you know, on your own. Uh, I had a church bus on Sunday morning, and that was the only time I could go to church. Uh, before that, I walked to whatever church that was closest to me. Uh, greatest thing that happened to me was two years later when I was 12 years old and my dad got saved and we were able to start going to church and he wanted to go to church as much as I wanted to go to church Did you get saved because of your actions? Or? my dad said some of, some of the changes in my life were what impacted on him plus a man that he was working with who was a Christian made an impact on his life but my dad was looking my dad was looking for God long before that uh, he was looking in all the wrong places, but he was looking for God long before that. He went into the martial arts, and it was not just the martial arts. He was on the religious side of the martial arts. He went into black magic. He was looking for God in a lot of different places before he finally found, Christ, you know, found God. Uh, and I was one of the ones that he looked at and said, my son has changed. You know, there were a lot of things that changed, you know, a lot of small things. And that, number one, God took away my temper. But I had a desire for God. I was, in, I was reading the Bible. I, you know, so yes, there was an impact. How big an impact? I don't know. But he has mentioned that I was one of the ones that impacted to change in him. All right, verse 157. Many are my persecutors and my enemies, yet I do not decline from your testimonies. This is quite a statement. God's, David's saying, I've got lots of enemies, God, but I'm still going to follow you. I am not going to bow down from your testimonies. I'm going to keep following you. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing up in a plane, the only, only three guys standing on the entire plane while everybody's bowed down to an idol. Oh, they're going to stand out in a crowd. You know, we're all standing here all bowing. <laughs> yeah. uh, come up here, guys. You know, maybe you didn't hear the instructions. Yeah, maybe you didn't hear the instructions. We said, when you hear the music, bow. <laughs> we'll give you another chance. No, no, sir, we're not bowing. How many places in our life do we bow down to sin instead of God? Way too often. Way too often. God, uh, if I don't do this, then I might lose my job. You know how many times I've heard people say that? Well, if I don't bend to this way of action or this wrong way, then I'll lose my job. Well, then maybe you need to lose your job. Is that easier said than done? Absolutely. Have I lost a, a job because of that? Absolutely. I have lost a job where I would not do something wrong because I knew it was wrong and I would not do it. And God provided. 
Are we willing to do that? Where in our life will we draw the line to say, God, I'm going to go this far and no further with you because I'm afraid. I'm afraid of whatever. We're coming to a time when this decision is going to be made by more and more Christians. God, I'm going to stand for you no matter what it costs. The job is nothing, really. Well, how about if it means going to prison for taking a stance for God? Or executed? Now, in one sense, execution is a whole lot easier in prison because you're going to heaven. And I've told you, when I was a teenager, I used to tell you the worst thing you could do is almost kill me. Kill me, I go home. Almost kill me, I have to suffer all over again. Do we truly believe that? Are we willing to face those trials? Paul said, I'm looking at heaven. I'm looking at eternity. I've been in the ocean three times. I've been stoned on several occasions. I've been chased out of cities. I've been I've this, that, and the other thing. I've been, I've been beat. And he goes, I'm still looking to God. I'm still looking at eternity. Are we ready for that? As Christians, are we ready for the possibility of the trials that are coming our way? And it used to be in America, we, we think, well, it's never going to happen. How many photographers, how many bakers have lost their businesses because they won't bow to what the country says you must do to participate in a homosexual marriage? And they go, no, we're not doing that. And they lose their businesses. That was unthinkable in this country just a few years ago. Now it's happening frequently. How many people have lost jobs because they are intolerant to the lifestyle of people at work and have said something? And they've ended up being fired because they will say, no, I'm not going to say it's, it's an okay lifestyle. You know, even if they don't attack it. I could easily lose my job at the prison because of things I say here lifting up God's word. Somebody could pick up one of the, the, the pre, uh, messages on, online, present it to them and say, look how intolerant it is, and I'm going to say, yes, I, that's my belief, and I could lose my job. Now, is that likely to happen? I don't know. If it happens, it happens. I'm not worried about it. Are we ready to accept it happening? You know, and I've shared with you all, when I was a teenager, I was absolutely convinced that some day in my life I was going to go to prison for being a Christian. Okay, and this is in the 70s that I'm having these thoughts. And it was unheard of for a Christian to go to prison in, in America. And I never thought I was going to go to another country to be arrested. And now I'm looking at the fact that it is probably extremely likely that I can be arrested and I'm not going to deny anything that I put on tapes about homosexuality and fornication and all these other things being sin. Because that's what God says. And so it is going to come a time when I will be arrested and I'm absolutely sure of it. Because of where our country is headed. And I'm trying to encourage everybody that listens to me, be ready. If you're going to take a stand for God, it means that you may end up being arrested. We're starting to see things happen in this, in, in this country, in this world, that we never thought would ever happen, especially in this country. We're going back to what it was like in the first century when you spoke for God and were killed. 
and wonderful little things like Nero light, you know, dipping you in tar and using you as a torch. Okay, are we that far along? Who knows? We've got people being beheaded. We've got people being killed. We've got all kinds of things going on in this world, and we need to be ready. We're not being asked to, and we'll be given the grace. If God wants us to, we'll be given the grace. But by the same token, I'm making a point that we need to be prepared because things are coming. And preparation is a big part of being able to say, yes, I'll, God, I want to support you. Because if it comes out of the blue, that's not the time to be making a decision. And, and it's the same thing I used to tell teenagers. The time to decide how far you're going is not when you're in the back seat of the car, you know, wondering how far, you're going to, how far it is you're going to go with the girlfriend in your car. It's long before you even get into the car with the girl in the first place, much less the back seat of the car. We need to be prepared because it is coming. It is coming. And we need to be ready to say, God, give me the strength to do what it is you want me to do and be, be with you and stand for you. Because it is coming. Persecution is coming. Verse 158. I beheld the transgressors and were grieved because they kept not your word. When you look at people that are sinning, and, walk, and not following God, does it grieve you? Do you wish that they understood who God was? Or is it like, well, it's their business, they can do what they want. You know, and that's sometimes my attitude, but you know, at the same time, I'm very grieved sometimes. When I see some of the movies and, and TV shows that come out, it's just like, wow, how could we be so far off? How could we, how could we have so many problems? And look where this is leading them to. You know, when we watch and see people that are living lives of sin and knowing where it goes, I get heartbroken for people at times. I'm going, I know you have the right to do what you want, but man, you're going the wrong direction. Look how miserable your life is. You know, you can't really say that sometimes to them, but it's like, God, they're, they're going the wrong way. How can we reach them? What can we do? And this is what generates sympathy and love from Christians sometimes. We look at their people's lives and go, God, how can we help these people? How can we be able to help these people follow you in a greater way? You know, our attitude definitely should not be, well, they're getting what they deserve. <laughs> yeah, look at that person. They're, they're, they're headed to hell. <laughs> no, that's not our, that better not be our attitude. We should be grieved. These people are going the wrong way. They're following the wide path. And you know, when Jesus said, wide is the way that leads to destruction, my picture of this is how do they round up cattle on open land? They chase them toward a fence area that funnels down to a ramp. That's what Jesus was talking about. Wide is the way that leads to destruction. They get funneled down into a single direction, and once they get there, there's no turning back. They're, they're stuck. Narrow is the gate. And you know, when we talk about the narrow gate, we go through it. Our destination is heaven wide open. We're going through a short, narrow way to get into a wide open area of freedom. Even in our daily walk, it opens up. Even though we're kept a little tight, tight, he keeps widening it up. And all of a sudden, it opens up to a huge vista of wide open space. Destruction or freedom? <laughs> Do you want the narrow gate at first or at the end? If it's at the end, it's destruction. If it's at the beginning, it opens up to a huge 
range of open field. You know, and so we want to consider and be grieved because they're not keeping God's word. And they're, they're headed toward destruction. And that should motivate us to share the gospel with people. It should motivate us to help them. You know, because what's going to go on? They're headed to destruction. And I heard a sermon long ago that talked about people at the white throne judgment. And if you're standing at the white throne judgment, you're guilty. We as Christians will not stand at the white throne judgment. We have already stood at the Bema seat of Christ. At the white throne judgment, if you're standing there at the white throne judgment, you are guilty. How many people will stand there and say, look around at, at us sitting there with Jesus? Why didn't you tell me? You knew that this was coming and you didn't tell me. Paul said, I am guilty of no man's blood. I have shared the gospel. I'm, ne I'm not able to do what, I've never been able to say what Paul said. That I'm guilty of no one's blood because I know there are people that I haven't shared the gospel with that I probably should have. Usually because I'm so slow and don't think that I should have talked about it to them until hours afterwards. Or I think of what I should have said hours afterwards. I'm very slow in that. I'm not like Paul to be able to say that. I think, you know, God, is there going to become a time when somebody's going to say, you never told me? You know, hopefully it's not your family. Hopefully you've taken time to tell your family about the gospel message. Verse 159, Consider how I love your precepts. Quicken me, O Lord, according to your tender mercies. I love your precepts, your way of thinking. You know, the way of thinking. How do I, how do I pattern my life? God, I love your precepts. Quicken me. Make me alive. That's been his theme on here. Quicken me. Make me alive. Get me into your word, God. Make me alive. And the closer we get to God, the more we are made alive. And then verse 160, your word is true from the beginning, and every one of your righteous judgments endure forever. Your word is true from the beginning. What did God say about his creation? He looked on creation and said, Behold, it is good. Creation was good. Whatever God saw, whatever it was that he was making, he said, It is good. He also knew what was going to happen with the sin, and he still said it was good. Yeah. He said it was good, and his judgments, his judgments, when he makes a decision, it endures forever. Aren't you glad that God does not change? He does not change. When he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love, he's never going to change his mind. His love is unconditional, objective love. Doesn't matter what we do or what we don't do. He loves us. Why does he love us? Because he chooses to love us. And because he doesn't change, he will never choose to not love us. Because he has chosen to love. Now that does not mean he won't send people to hell because of his love, because they, he will give them what they wanted, but he will be heartbroken giving them what they want. You know, when my dad used to give us spankings, he used to say, this hurts me more than it hurts you. And as a, as a kid, I was going, yeah, right. I remember the first time I had to spank one of my kids. I did not want to spank my kid. 
I did not want to cause pain to my child, but I knew that I needed to because I loved my child and wanted to see correction. And I finally understood what my dad said, this hurts me more than it hurts you. And I will tell anybody, if you can spank your kid without feeling the pain of having caused pain to that child, you should not be spanking your kid. Plain and simple. Because you don't have the right motivation and, and love for that child to be spanking them. You better use some other discipline. And I fully believe that spankings are a very effective discipline with children when they're done right. And if you don't feel pain, inflicting pain on your child, then you are, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> and this is what he's saying. Your words are true. Your judgments are righteous and endure. When God makes a judgment, it is correct. He is, never, he is not a judge that has ever given an incorrect judgment. Now, we've seen many, many judges in courts cases that have incorrect judgments. God is not one of those. Every one of his judgments is correct. Why? Because he knows everything. Okay? He knows everything. He has no unknown in his judgment. He knows that when he judges, what, it, what impact it will have on you in the future. Because he knows everything. Not only everything that has happened up to that point, but everything that will happen afterwards. That gives you perfect judgments. Because you know exactly what the punishment should be and how it's going to affect that person into the future. We as humans don't know that. When we discipline or are disciplined, we don't know what it means in the future. God already does. And he says, your word is true from the beginning. <laughs> Now, having God's word is so wonderful. I love his word because the more I study it, the more I find how true it is. The more I find out how it really talks about people. It is wonderful talking to the people in, in, that don't know Jesus and listening to some of the stupid things they say. Yeah. Now, a lot of times they tell you really stupid things. They're educated. They got their doctorates. They got their PhDs. They got their eight PhDs and say stupid things because it's all based in human knowledge. And you go, well, you know, God says this. Knowing that his word is true, it doesn't take long for you to know that people are evil. Just generally evil. Even those who control their evil desires have evil desires. Usually we can control them with the idea of, well, if I do this, I might get caught and I might go to prison and I don't want to go to prison. And that controls a lot of people. Or I might do this and I'll get wrong and some bad thing will happen. I use prison as an extreme, but some bad thing. I, you know. But how many times do they go, if you, could, if you knew that you could do something and you were not going to get caught and punished, what would you be willing to do? And when they ask that to people, you'd be surprised what people are willing to do if they knew they would not get caught. Because they'll think about that person they really don't like and would be, that they feel that they would be happy without them anywhere near their life, and then going, you know, if I knew absolutely that I could not get caught and would not get caught, I might take that person completely out of the picture. That's the way the world thinks. Why? Especially when all we are is animals. If all we are is animals, then that person's life means nothing into eternity because they're just another animal and they've irritated me. Why do we have so much mass murders anymore? 
is because all you're doing is killing a bunch of idiot animals who aren't as smart or nice as you are. And so they kill off a bunch of animals. This is the repercussions of all the evolutionary teaching we have. And I've said it, you know, I've heard it in non-original meaning, and I've said it many times. Why do we have as much trouble in our schools? Well, because you're told you're nothing but an evolved animal, and if you're an evolved animal, the survival of the fittest exists. You know, if you're strong enough to impose your will, then you impose your will. Hitler was an evolutionist, and he was taking evolution to its extreme. The Aryan race was the number one race. Let's get rid of everybody else and purify it. He was taking evolution to its extreme. Well, to its, not even extreme, to its conclusion. And there's been many people over the years that have been doing that. When people are, people are taught that you're nothing but an animal, there's no dignity in life, you're not created in the image of God, there's no purpose in your life, suicide becomes very easy. Suicides are becoming very easy because people just don't believe that there's anything worth living, there's no eternity in their mind. We're just animals, I'm just going to kill this animal. Matter of fact, I'll take a bunch of other animals out with me as I, as I go out. No big deal. We need to get God back in the picture. And I don't know that it's going to happen. I've shared this. I hope that we have a great revival in this country and this world and, and bring God back in. I don't have high hopes for it. But I'd love to see it. You know, looking at history, it's possible that we could have a revival. I mean, another 100 or 200 years you know, if we did, but then that's great because I've, I've got a grandchild now. I'd like the grandchild to live for, for, for a life in a revived nation. Matter of fact, I'm scared for my kid, my grandchildren right now, my grandchild right now, because of what I, I'm looking at them having to live in. And so we had a revival that on one side, that would be fantastic. Get a chance to teach them to be a Christian and, and have impact on the rest of, you know, back on another generation. I just don't have a whole lot of hope for that happening. I pray for it. I'd love to see it. I want to do what I can to bring it about. But it's also very very important to me that that grandchild learns about Jesus at an early age and learns to follow God from an early age so that he can be strong as times get harder. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. We ask that you go with us and as we go about our business and keep us as we Go, go about uh, serving you. Show us divine appointments and help us to have eyes open to see those. In your son's name, amen.